Good morning, church. Good morning. Great. I love it when everyone's chatty. Tells us that we are, we're comfortable in God's house. So I'm welcome this morning, everyone. Um, if you're new today, um, a big welcome to you. Um, uh, today is a bit of a sort of in-between period because we've just finished uh, our, our series um, on, on A Better Way um, for the past few weeks if you've uh, been with us, and then we're going into the Christmas season. So um, Tom um, sort of said, open up the Bible and, you know, see what God is saying. So um, we've, I've been thinking, um, praying about um, what to bring to to you, um, God's dear children, this morning, um, and God is uh, so. I feel like on my on my heart, God's drawing me towards um, the story of Gideon um, in the Bible. So, is anyone here um, familiar with Gideon? Yeah, I, I love a good um, action um, story. So, um, Gideon's story is definitely action filled, uh, but I think there's a lot of parallel between um, sort of Gideon's life. In our life and the context in which we live, and, and context that we are living in, in today. Um, so if I, um, I think I've been introduced a few times today. My name is Tommy Oyebadija, and uh, I'm one of the elders here at uh, Hope Church. So if this is your first time, warm welcome again. So we're going to be looking into um, the book of Judges today, um, especially Judges uh, chapter six and seven. Um, if you have your Bible, great. Um, because we're going to be dipping in and out of the Bible, and hopefully we'll have some of the words displayed on here if you don't have your Bible. But make sure you come with your Bible next time. But if you don't, that's fine. We'll, 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 we'll forge ahead. So if you can open your Bible to um, the book of Judges, chapter 6. And uh, I'll read the first uh, 10 verses there. It's a good start. I'll open my Bible to Joshua. Right. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance in Israel, and no sheep or ox or donkey, for they will come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number, both they and their camels could not be counted. So they laid waste, they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. And when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you from Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord, and you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. And so, Father, we, we come to your word like little children. We come um, knowing that your word is, is better for us. Your word is life for us, Lord. And we just pray, Lord, this morning that as we come to your word, that you will speak to us. It will not be my voice. It will not be me. Uh, but it will be you, Lord. Help us to have ears to hear what you have to say to us, Lord. 
Stir us this morning, Father, for your glory. Amen. Okay. And so we see uh, the, the children of Israel are in a difficult situation um, whereby you have essentially sort of a mass of people from the land of Midian coming into the land and like locusts just clearing out everything year on year. And this completely devastates the, um, the economy and the livelihood of the, of the Israelites. And they, so they, they are upset, obviously, and crying out to God for help. And then God sends a prophet to them and says that, have you forgotten how much I did for you when you were in Egypt? Now, this story takes place about, like, about 250 years after the events of Exodus. So the events of Exodus was not that far in the rearview mirror for the people living at this time. And God, I had to remind them and said, do you forget how I brought you out of the house of slavery, how you were brought low and how I made you to drive out the people in the, of the land, how I made you conquer Pharaoh? And then God says, I said to you, I am the Lord your God, that you shall not fear the, Lord, the gods of the Amorites. That is, you shall not worship other gods, but you have not obeyed my voice. And because the people lived in this state of disobedience, God allowed um, them to be essentially um, dominated by um, the Midianites and the, the Amorites and the Amalekites. And so we see even in our day and age today that we, we are a people that someone said, I think, into this morning's prayer that we are a minority or we refuse to be a minority. Um, but the reality is we are a minority. Um, it came out this week that uh, there is... Officially, the UK is no longer a Christian-majority nation. I think it, it's not been a Christian-majority nation for a while, but on the books, it's now been officially confirmed. Now, the Office of uh, National Statistics showed that about 46% of the population um, described themselves as Christians in 2021. Now, compared to 2011, which is about 10 years ago, this is a 13-point decrease from where we are. So if you, I was looking at a chart and you, if you could see there's a steady like, drop in the number of Christians. And what is very interesting about that statistics is that every other religion in the, in the land is witnessing some type of increase. But the, 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 the people who refer to themselves as Christians are seeing a steady decline. And the religion that has seen the most increase is the group called No Religion which is very ironic, right? Because that is a religion, no religion. And so we see even in our land and in our day that there is a steady erosion of the love of God. We've just been through um, a series where we talk about a better way and how um, there, there are cultural changes that would look so strange to people, even in this room, you know, who are much older, who have sort of seen uh, more of life as aware, that they would look back and say, wow, so much has changed in the culture in the land. Let us not forget that this is, a, this is a nation that brought the gospel to many nations of the world, that God used to bring the gospel to many nations of the world. And we see now in this land that Christians are you know, officially recognized as a minority. And so something worth us 
pondering on and, 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 and thinking about. Because I think for a long time, we've had this cloak of, because we're a majority Christian nation, you know, we celebrate Christmas, you know, everyone says Merry Christmas, that means things are good. But I think that's a fig leaf of what's actually going on underneath. There's been a, a steady erosion of the love of God. We know from our workplaces things you can't say or you can't do. If you're wearing a cross, you can't wear a cross if you're in the NHS, all that kind of stuff. There's a steady erosion, a steady um, just pushing away of God. And God is saying to us that you in this land have turned to worship other gods. And he's saying that to his people. And we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. And so we, we read on. Now, I'll carry on from Judges 6, 11 to 16. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beaten out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, almighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? Not, but now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hands of Midian. And the, Lord, and the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you will strike Midianite, this Midianite as one man. And so we see this conversation between Gideon and this angel from the Lord. And Gideon doesn't quite recognize that he's an angel. He, he, he come across in a, um, in a much subdued form. So there was not, it wasn't glowing and there wasn't wings or anything. So that's why Gideon could sort of approach him and wasn't afraid. And so they had this conversation, and the man starts by referring to Gideon as a mighty man of valor. But if you look at it, the setting here, you had Gideon basically in this hole, a wine press, and basically what he's doing in the wine press is he's got nothing to do with wine. He's basically threshing wheat. But the reason why he's underground is so he doesn't want the Midianites to see him. Because remember, this guy's coming and clear out the entire land. So Gideon is a fearful man. And this guy comes to him and says, mighty man of valor. And it's such a contrast there. And, and, and it's interesting because <laughs> he kind of ignores that first statement that he's a mighty man of valor. And he just goes straight to, but how can you say God is with us? Can't you see what's going on in our land? How can you possibly say God is, you know, building this church? How can you say God is with us? And then the man says, go in this might of yours. Gideon says, okay, you've, you've got to cut that out, right? Because... I'm the least in my father's house. Can you see I'm in a hole right here? What are you talking about? And he had this engagement. And he says, no, I will save Israel through you. And so Gideon has this engagement with him. He says, well, if you really are from God, let me, let me just go and test some stuff out. So he brings out a little offering, and the angel taps the offering with the end of his, of his staff, and the offering sets ablaze. And Gideon's like, whoa! Angel vanishes, and Gideon's like, my goodness, I've seen God. Oh my goodness, I've seen God. I'm not going to survive. God says, I've come in peace to you. And that's where we, we hear um, the title, Jehovah Shalom. God is peace. And Gideon builds an altar there. 
And so we see here, Gideon gets cold. He gets cold in the hole that he was. And there's something about that that we can all reflect on. People go about their lives, and I'm talking about Christians, like, you know, what kind of, we're born, you know, we leave, we move, I, I, get a, I grow up, go to university, get a job, and I get married or whatnot. We kind of go through life. But we go through life in many ways, sadly, without purpose. What I mean by that is we go through life without a, a, an overwhelming sense that I am here because God has placed me here at this time in human history. This is a very important thing for us to get. Because once we realize that, it changes our mindset. We, we become like people on a mission. Paul puts it very well um, in Acts 17, um, 26 to 28. And Paul says, when he was talking to the Athenians, right? He was talking to them and he, he was kind of vexed in his soul when he saw them worshiping all the, the false gods. And Paul basically engages them in this, in this theater, this, this place where they have debate and discussion. And Paul says, and he, he being God, made one man every, from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God, perhaps feel their way towards him, and find him. Yet, he's actually not far from each one of us. And what is very interesting about that is that Paul is saying that God, in his wisdom and in his power basically said at different times in history people will exist right it wasn't god just sort of throwing up a dice and just kind of said you know let's see how this works out no god's like no 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 this time in history this guy will be born and he will be 20 years old by this time and he will meet this person and that person god has said they're going to be alive by this time that means everybody in this room everybody here we're not here by accident. That's what I'm saying. There is no accident. And so, if God has planned these things out, has planned for you to be here, then how can we live our lives like zombies? Not realizing that there's, there's a mission here. And so you look at Gideon and you, and you say, well, it's just, it was just an ordinary bloke threshing out. No, God planned that he would be where he was at that time for the work that he had committed to his hand. And we are all like that. And if you're a Christian here, that happened because God, in his foreknowledge, thought about you before the earth began and says, that person is going to be alive at this time in history because I have a work for them to do in, in this land. So you've been alive in the UK at this time, right? It's, it's not an accident. It's very important that we, we grab hold of this. He's called us to be citizens of his kingdom. If you're a Christian here, you're a citizen of his kingdom. You got, if you're called by him, that means you are on a mission. He has a work for you. And part of that work is to invite others to his kingdom. Because what does Paul says? He, he, he set times and boundaries that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way to him. His interest is that mankind seeks him, comes back to him, is drawn closer to him. 
And so we see after this event in Judges where Gideon basically is, you know, is, is accepted. Okay, it looks like there's a mission here. God has called me to do something. And what does God say to him? If we look at Judges 6, 25, 27, I'll, I'll read briefly um, 25 to 27. And, and that night, this is after Gideon has set up an altar and acknowledged, you know, that God is, God is peace. That night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah, that is a pole that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold there with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you, should, that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So God says to Gideon, right, okay, now... I've called you on a mission. First thing you're going to do is you're going to break down that altar. You've got to get rid of that altar. We're going to come back to that later on. And so Gideon, still timid, says, okay, God, but let's do it at night because I don't want to get killed. And that's exactly what he did. And then the guys in the, in the town woke up and they said, well, who's, who's broken down our, our, our altar? Who's, who's, who's done this, this thing? And if our way is Gideon, he did it. And it's funny because Gideon's father, you see the love of a father come out, and the father says, whoa, whoa, hold on, before you kill him, right, if he's, if he's committed a sin against Baal, let Baal come and defend himself against Gideon. So the people thought, okay, okay, this is, this is, this is fine. You see, it's almost like the father didn't actually believe in Baal, which makes you think, why was he worshipping it to start with? But that's how Gideon basically gets saved from being lynched by his own people. And then we see Gideon has his name changed. And people refer to him as Jeroboam, the one who contends with Baal. And the, the next thing after that, and I, and I, think, and I think this is one of the, uh, I, I really get chills when I, when, I was, when I read this. And so he's done this and he's broken down the, the altar of Baal. They've had this, this back and forth with his people. He's saved. He's called a new name Jeroboam. And, and then he says this in, in verses 33. Now, all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abizarites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun and Naphtali and they went up to meet him. And so we see this transformation from the, that bloke that was in the middle of a, a hole, hiding, fearful of his life, he responds to God in obedience. And then the Midianites come in once again. But this time it's different. It says he was clothed with the Spirit of God. Beautiful picture. I can't help but think about the Avenger Marvel series where danger's around and Iron Man basically gets his armor out, and you see this, this armor of metal just encapsulate him. And at that moment, you have no doubt in your mind that this guy is going to kick some butt. <laughs> Not a doubt in your mind. And that's what we see here. We see this transformation. Not a humanly transformation, but a 
godly, a divine transformation. He's clothed with the Spirit of God. And he has this new confidence. And he's, he's leading people. And he's calling out these tribes. The lesser tribes, he's calling them out. And they're all rallying to him. Amazing. Amazing what God can do when we're obedient to him. And so we, we see in, in chapter 7 as, as the events progress. You know, God basically has these men, and there was about 32,000 men that were rallied to Gideon's call, which sounds like a lot. But actually, when you actually read the, the passage, you find out that, thinking verses um, chapter 8, you find out the amount of Midianites and Amalekites were about 120, no, 135,000. So he had numbers, but not as much as what the Amalekites had brought to bear. And so we see God is eager to save his people, but God starts this passage with something that is very, very odd. And I want us to focus today on this. I want, I want this to be the, the core of what I'm, I'm bringing to you this morning. So from verses, uh, from chapter 7, from verses 1, chapter 7, verses 1. Then Jerubal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Harod, and the camp of Midian was north of them, by the hill of Moreh and the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me and said, my own hand has saved me. That's very odd. So you have 135,000 people, and you have 32,000 people, and God says, you've got too many people with you. And we can't question God's mathematics, because he, he, he created the universe. But he says, that's still too many people for what I'm about to do. And the Lord said to, to Gideon, in verse 3, Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, say, whoever is fearful and trembling, let them return home. And hurry away from, from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. Just kind of comforting because you're like, so I have all these people and 22,000 are afraid. It's like, oh man. God's like, put out that dead, dead weight. You've got just 10,000 now. So 10,000 against 135,000. Odds are still against Gideon, you might say. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And basically God says to him, 10,000 is still too many. And then God says, you need to carry out this test by the river. Get them to drink. The people that sort of stand and lap with their hands, you select them. Everyone else, you send them home. So I can imagine Gideon at this point saying, please, please, everyone stand and lap with your hand. And basically, the whole army, basically, the whole army all get down on their knees and start, oh, I can imagine Gideon going, oh, my goodness, we've lost this one. And only 300 men, 300 men were left just lapping with their hands. And Gideon was probably like, oh, God, did you mean the guys who were on their knees? Those were the guys, right? Yeah. The guys said, no, no, no. The guys who stood up and drank, those are the ones that you will select. 300 men. And what's the story here? The story is that God wants to move. He wants to move in our time. He wants to do great work. 
but God will never do any work that will take away glory for himself. He will never do anything that would make you even guess or say, well, maybe it was because I, I, you know, I did do that course the other day, so maybe that was what helped me. God will, will never do a work that would make you question that this is the hand of God. He, he is jealous for his own glory. That's why the Bible says time and time again, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So, gentle, meek, lowly Christians, sheep of Jesus Christ, lovely people. Why are we talking about battle and why are we talking about war? Surely this was thousands of years ago, about 3,000 years ago. What's this got to do with us? We're all civilized people. I don't see anyone here with a sword or a gun or shield. So why are we talking about war? As we speak now, there is a battle going on. And I'm not talking about battle going on in Eastern Europe or somewhere um, in Africa or in Asia. Where I'm not talking about that kind of battle. I'm talking about a battle that is going on right here, right now. Happening everywhere that we are operating at. Battles going on in our high streets, at our schools, our places of work, our hospitals, our football ground. There is a battle now over the souls of people. There's a tug going on now. It says in, in the Bible in Revelation that there was a rebellion in heaven and Satan, the great serpent, deceived and caused a third of the angels, a third of the angels. Now, we don't quite know how many angels there are in, in heaven, but if we were to have a guess, it'd probably be as many as the stars in the universe. There's so many stars in the universe, just so much stars in the universe. I don't think we've got a number yet. A third of those rebelled against God. And those angels have made it their mission to make sure that people would not receive that eternal felicity, that eternal grace of God. That is their 24-7 mission. These guys don't sleep. They don't get tired. They don't get hungry. They won't go to a pit stop and get refueled. And these are the guys that are battling against us. Every day, when you're sleeping, these guys, these beings are on that mission to oppress, to trip, to kill, to steal. The Bible says that Satan is like a roaring lion going about looking for whom to devour, not resting. And Paul says it best when it says in Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against the authorities. Not talking about the MPs. Not talking about, um, you know, presidents and kings. We're talking about authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. That's what we are called against. So when you look at it in this context, actually Gideon had a good deal. He was wrestling against flesh and blood. In a sense. But we are called to wrestle against spiritual forces. Can anyone raise their hand up as a physically wrestle down a spiritual force in the room today? I see a man at the back over there. 
right? It's probably an angel of the Lord. Um, but the reason I say that is because these are powerful entities. These are, in their very own right, angels. They have the power, the speed, the intelligence of angels. The fallen angels, but the angels nonetheless. And they are arrayed. In a passage of the Bible, it says that um, one angel puts to death like, thousands of people. Like, God used one angel to keep. Like, this guy's just, they're so powerful. But that's what God has called us into his kingdom to wrestle against. And we're wrestling not because we want to get into a fight necessarily with the angels, but we're wrestling because of the souls of people that we come across every day. So in, in many ways, we are Gideon. We are fighting against the odds. On one side, you've got Gideon and his men. It doesn't really say much about their sword or their shield or their spear. That's the thing I find very odd about this. If you read the passage, what does God say to Gideon and his men? If we, if we just read quickly, um, so they, they've encamped. God has stripped down the army, and then we go to um, verses 19. So Gideon and... So, so, so I'll, I'll go slightly back before then. Right? So God basically says to Gideon, okay, I'm going to give you this, this, this place. So then Gideon gets the revelation that, yes, we're going to conquer And then in verse 17, he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me will blow the trumpet also. And on every side of the camp, shout, shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So that's the instruction. So Gideon and the, the hundred men who were with him. So 300 men, he splits them up into a company of three and, start, and to, to essentially encircle the, the, the camp of the Midianites. 100, 100, 100. And what do they have in their hands? They've got a jar of clay. They've got a torch, like some burning torch. They've got trumpets. Um, and they're going to shout. So this is their great battle strategy. Now, I know of at least two people here that are sort of military um, men, or men that are either ex-military or in the military. And I've, I've watched a few military movies in my time. So, you know, I think I know a thing or two, although I've never, you know, I'm not going to claim any glory that it's, it's, not, it's not my own. But it's one thing that I know, which is, if you're going to go into battle, you need something very sharp or something that can shoot very well. You don't go into battle with pottery. This isn't an art class. A jar of clay, torch. Okay, maybe you might need a torch to see where you're going to. A trumpet, okay, right? Trumpet, I guess you can use that to call people. But what about the, what about the tactics? What about the jujitsu? What about the kung fu? What about, like, you know, we, you know has anyone seen the film 300, right? You have 300 men, and they made a mass of the Persian army counter for nothing because they had geographical, geographically tactical advantage. They, re- they basically fought within a passage whereby it was mano a mano. But what does God say to them? Go out, open field. 300 men against 135,000? I did a calculation. That means one man has to kill 400 people. It's absurd. 
Let's be honest with ourselves. All God is basically saying to them is, I want you to creep up, think about this, around them, and then when you take your positions, watch out for the signal of Gideon, and then what Gideon is going to do is, he's going to first smash his pottery in the middle of, of the night. You know that's, you know that's going to make some, some noise. That's called, in battle terms, in military terms, that's called giving away your position. <laughs> so, after that, then, I want you to take your torch, which you're kind of hiding gently under the porch, and then wave it up in case the Midianites are partially deaf and can't hear that portrait breaking, so they can see where you are. Then, I want you to blow your trumpet as loud as you can in case those who are hard of hearing in the camp of Midian still cannot hear you. Then, I want you to shout on top of your voice, at the top of your voice, for the Lord and for Gideon. The sword for the Lord and for Gideon, that's what it says. What does it say? For the Lord and for Gideon. So basically, what they are doing is basically a series of, we're going to roll up to them in the, you know, in, in the cover of darkness, and then we're going to give away our position. And when we give away our position, and listen to this, and I just thought, this doesn't make sense. And he said, and they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And then every man stood in his place around the camp. So you've just given away your position. You've got inferior numbers. You probably don't even have superior weapons. And then what do you do? Just going to stand there. I just thought, if you want someone to lose a battle, you couldn't give them a worse tactic. But that's what God called them to do. And we all laugh. And the reason why we all laugh is because we see the absurdity of it. Why do we see the absurdity of it? Because when it comes to human endeavors, when it comes to human warfare, this is not how you go about it. But we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. We're wrestling against principalities and powers, against spiritual wickedness, evil forces in high places. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We are weapon. Gideon and his men just used the weapon. And we all laughed because we thought, ha, that's your weapon. Paul is saying, our weapons, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. They have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So we are weapons. So what, do you know what that means? That means you're soldiers. If you're a Christian, yeah, that means you're a soldier for Christ. But your weapons are not guns, they're not slings, they're not bows, they're not arrows. They're not fleshly, worldly weapons. They're spiritual weapons. So let's look at some of the spiritual, our spiritual weapons. First one is a jar of clay. What does the Bible have to say about that? 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. What does that mean, jar of clay? It means you're made of matter. It means you're clay, you're human, you're dust. You're mortal. But in you, there is a treasure and that treasure is what you call the surpassing power, the supreme power of God. 
hidden in the jar of clay. And what is this power? It's the Holy Spirit of God. It's the Holy Spirit of God. Wherever the Spirit of God is, there is, is the presence of God and there is extreme power. We need, we need God help us to see this, Lord. I work at a nuclear power station and every day I walk past it. But some days, especially when I'm in a turbine hall, you put your hands on the angel, you're walking past it, you feel the vibration. You feel the power coming out of the reactor trans translated into steam. Immense power. But the power we're talking about here is the power that lights up a trillion galaxies. It is a power that resurrected Jesus from the dead. It is the power that makes the dead, the rotten, to live again and breathe again. This is the power that God says resides in us. Isn't that ridiculous? I look at you guys and I don't see power. <laughs> but that's what God says. Are we going to believe our eyes or are we going to believe the one that created the heavens and the earth? We see this power in scriptures. We see Elijah, prophet Elijah. We see him after um, he has his showdown on Mount Carmel. How he runs ahead of Ahab with a chariot. And you read that and you kind of gloss over. You go, whoa, whoa, wait, you mean you ran ahead of a chariot? You beat a chariot in a race with your two legs? What does it say? It says the, the spirit of God came upon Elijah and then he pulled in his garment, tucked it into his belt and he just went ahead of the chariot. That's power. We see that power when little David gets anointed by, by, by Saul. And what does it say? And it says that, and Samuel took the own of oil, anointed him in the midst of the, his brothers and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him upon David from that day forward. And what does David do? We see David go to a, to a, a giant, an experienced seasoned warrior, and says that you're nothing. You're nothing. And he uses a stone to fell a giant. We see ordinary men do extraordinary things once they are clothed in the Spirit of God. Remember that picture I gave you of that armor? That's what we have. We don't just have the armor. It's in us. That's so why Christ says to them, to his disciples in John 14, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. What, you mean like raise the dead up? You mean like open the eyes of the blind? Like, Christ, you can't just say things like that. Like, that's, that's a big thing. But greater works than these will he do. Okay, God, like, come on, you're making me look bad now. You mean I'll do greater work than this? And what does Christ say? Because I'm going to the Father, whatever I ask you in my name, I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. And if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And so we have this assurance from Christ himself. That's why I says to the disciples, I don't leave you like orphans. Why? Because the Spirit will be in you. And the Spirit is with you. It's just like Jesus Christ is with us right here. 
I mean, this, this, stuff, is, this stuff is challenging. I will do greater works than this. The second, so that was the first. The first, the first um, uh, weapon was jars of clay, but treasures in jars of clay. Okay? The second weapon is the torch. Right? But to give away your positions. What does Jesus say? Matthew 5, 14, he says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but understand, and it gives lives to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may what? They may see your good deeds and give glory to the, your Father who is in heaven. The torch represents the living, the life of a Christian, the good deeds, the works that God has created for us to do since before time began. That's the torch. That's your weapon. So you do good deeds and kind of say, oh, I'm a Christian. It's what I'm kind of doing. And I'm a humble Christian. I do good deeds and I do charity. That's a weapon. That's what God is saying. That's a weapon. You're giving away your position. You're saying, I'm a son of the Father. I am giving glory to the Father because of these works. Brings honor to the Father. That's the torch. That's your weapon. That's your second weapon. So don't forget his weapons. So we got the, the treasure and the jar of clay. We got a torch. The third one, the trumpet. What is the trumpet? All Christians, young and old, mature, immature, we are what? We are proclaimers of the gospel. We are heralds. We declare the gospel. Paul writes, Romans 1, 16 to 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the righteousness of God it is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God unto salvation. It is the actual power of God for salvation. So when we pray for salvation, God, do this, do that. God says the power is in the gospel for salvation. That's big. It's the power. It's not how well you say the gospel. It's not how posh your English is. It's not how learned you are, how many gospel books you've written or you've read. It is declaring the gospel in which the power resides. God, in his infinite wisdom, has chosen the gospel as his instrument for resurrecting spiritually dead people. The moment anyone believes that Jesus' death on the cross is what they need to be saved from their death, that comes through sin. That moment, the person becomes alive and translated into the kingdom of God. It is so ordinary. That's, that's the challenge we have. We have the trumpet. We have the gospel. Number four, prayer. James 5, 16 says, that the prayer of the righteous avails much. The prayer of the righteous effects much change. Is very powerful. We encourage to pray without ceasing. We see in Revelation, we see the elders are holding these golden bowls, and in it it says that it's filled with the prayers of the saints, like incense rising up to God. So when we pray, 
it doesn't just kind of evaporate and go somewhere into the air. It's actually being collected and gathered up and presented to God. It's delivered, expressed, beyond first-class postage stamp, expressed to the throne of God, and God is taking it in, the prayers of his, of his saints. It avails much. We see Gideon people. What did they say? For the Lord and for Gideon. That was their prayer. It wasn't complicated. It wasn't 10 minutes long. It was a prayer for the Lord and for Gideon. There is both great simplicity and great power in our prayer. And I'll share this very quickly with you. So this is from the life of a man known as George Muller. And he writes in his diary towards the end of his life. In November 1844, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every day without a single inter intermission. Whether sick or in health or land, on land or sea, whatever the pressure of my engagement. After 12 years, three of the five became Christians. After 50 years, one more. This is, this is someone else writing, and not Muller. The Muller thanked God and went on praying. So he sent four out of the five. By his death in 1894, 1898, 54 years after he had first felt a call to pray for the five, the remaining ones still had not made any commitments, though prayed for by Muller till to the end. It was later reported he became a Christian early the next century. This is a man that spent his life saying, I think it's on my heart to pray for these people. And he labored in prayer every day. And so all of them translated into the kingdom of God. There is great power in our prayer. Anyone impressed with the weapons I'm bringing so far? Bet some of you thought I was going to bring like uh, how it's uh, some cruise missiles or something. But these are much more powerful because what we're dealing with are forces that don't respond to physical weapon. And then the last one is faith. Faith is what makes 300 men creep up to the enemy, give away their positions, shout on top of the voice, and then stand. Faith is what makes men do that. Paul describes faith as a shield for us that quenches the fiery arrows of the enemy. Faith is there's so much stuff. We, we had a series on faith, you know, evidence of things not hoped for, things not seen. But what, what, let's, let's distill it. Let's not Christianize or Christianize. Like, what is it? It is trusting that God means what he says and can and will accomplish what he wants. We show faith in God by our obedience. Obedience is the engine of faith. We can say from here, oh, I believe you, oh God, I believe you. God says, okay, go pray for that stranger on the road. Oh, but Lord, I believe you, I really, really believe you. But go pray for that stranger on the road. If you remain in believing God and not in obeying what is prompting you to do, you won't see any work happen. Faith is essential, but obedience is the engine that drives faith, that brings that result out. That's our fifth weapon. So do we remember what those five weapons were? What's the first one? Treasure. Someone said, 
It's Holy Spirit treasure. What was the other one? A torch. What was the other one? What was the torch? Our light, our good deeds. Yeah, what was the third one? Our trumpet. What was the trumpet? The gospel. What was the fourth one? Prayer. Great. And what was the fifth one? Faith. So our four, our five great weapons. And we see Gideon and his men employ these weapons to great result. They routed the entire army, 135,000 men. It says they got to a point where they were just reduced to 15,000 men. And Gideon and his 300 were chasing after these people, chasing hard after them. But why don't we see results in our day and age? Why is it that we have this, this power that dwells in us and we don't see working out? George Muller, the same man, he lived through the Victorian era, through the whole um, sort of uh, Oliver Twist kind of situation. We have all these street kids living on the, on the street. But this man had not a penny to his name, but he had faith, he had prayer, and he was willing to be obedient to God. And so it's like, God, I, I feel you're calling me to build orphanages, but I don't have a penny. And so he prayed and he trusted God. And by the end of his life, George Muller built five orphanages at St. 10,000 children looked after, fed, clothed, educated, and given a job after they left the orphanages. And in his life, he raised the equivalent of 86 million pounds. On faith and prayer, he had no major connections. On faith and prayer, we, if we raise, you know, we do a charity run and we raise like 1,000 pounds, everyone's going to know about it. I raised 1,000 pounds. There's a brother among us today. Um, I, I can't see him in the room, but I think he's, he's here. Um, he was sharing a testimony, and this was shared last week, where he felt prompted by God to pray for a homeless man on the street. And he kind of pulled up his car in the most awkward place, hazard light on. It's like, I, I think God's calling him to pray for you. And the homeless man kind of argues, well, there is no God, blah, blah, blah. And later he argues, well, if there is a God, why is all this bad thing happening? And then our brother says... I think you should pray, you know, that God will reveal himself to you. And this, the homeless man's like, okay, starts praying, and then bursts out into tongues. And the homeless man's looking puzzled, and our brother's looking puzzled, like, what's going on here? But there's precedence for that in the Bible, where people who were not Christians heard the message of the gospel, and they start speaking in tongues. That power ex- exists today. Problem is we don't tap into the power. We don't tap into the power. God wants us not to be impressed by the challenges of the world. Oh, we're a minority. Woe is us. God says, be impressed by me. Be impressed by my power. Finally, God wants us to reconsecrate ourselves before every great move of God throughout all history, be it in the Bible times or in our times, it always starts with God's people reconsecrating, coming back to him. That is to reject every idol they have erected. We heard a word brought today about the idols of the world not giving life. God says, there's life in me, and I have so much to do through you, but you've got to destroy the altar of Baal. You've got to destroy this altar in your life. We must remember 
because we forget so often. Human beings have amnesia, really, a really bad case of amnesia. We must remember how God loved us. He loved us when we did not deserve to be loved. He washed our sin-induced festering wounds. He cleaned us up and dressed us up. And then he clothed us in the garment of his son. And then he put a crown on our head. And then he says, you are my son and you are my daughter. Remember your first love. Remember how he saved you. The reason why so many times our hearts are cold to people who are dying and, and perishing every day before us is because our heart is not warm to God. Our heart has grown cold because we've forgotten our first love. God wants to stir compassion in us again. He wants us to pursue after people, but that only happens when we are pursuing after him, when he is first in our lives. So I'm going to invite the worship team back this morning um, to, the, to, the, to the stage. And I want us in this room um, to take the time to pray for one another. If you're in a group, um, if this is your first time here, you're not a Christian, you're not quite sure how this works, that's fine. You can sit this one out. But um, God wants you into his kingdom. And for all the Christians in here, I want us to pray for one another. And I'll close with this. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn away from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. We all want to see our lands healed, right? We all want to see people return to Christ. It starts with us. It starts with us humbling ourselves before God. Pray for one another. So I will encourage us as the team um, leaders this morning to get in, get in groups and pray for one another that God will soften our hearts, help us to remember our first love.